Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to episode 113 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, the professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, Edward. How are you doing? I'm very good. Tonight we look at the horror film Mantango, also known as Attack of the Mushroom People. But uh, before we get into that, it's time to ask what you've been watching. And Stephen, since the last episode, what has been holding your interest? Okay, I've got a couple of things. And one of them is a follow-up from last week, or last episode. It's very confusing now. We have the two shows in tandem. So I think last episode you said that you'd watched the 1998 Roland Emmerich epic Godzilla. Yes. Um, yeah, it had been brought up on Verbal Diorama. They were, she was doing an episode on it. Mm. And yeah, I, I couldn't understand, never understand the hate that that film got. And obviously, uh, if you listen to uh, her episode, you can... In my comments on that, where basically just argue the case for it being, you know, being yeah. noteworthy. I mean, the Toho universe references it, and it's sort of got its own second life, really. Yeah, so I think I did in that episode, I committed to rewatch it, because my okay. memory of it was a bit, um, a bit hazy. Yeah. But I seem to remember enjoying it. I certainly remember enjoying all the, um all the trailers and things that are coming up to it. So yeah, the other weekend I put it on and I I had a really good time with it. <laughs> I think I wouldn't really consider it a Godzilla movie per se. Although there are sort You're of on the same page as the president of Toho then. Since he just said <laughs> it was a very good monster movie, but not a Godzilla movie. And I think that's it. It's clearly been made by people who probably don't really understand what a Godzilla movie is. And I think they're pretty much on paper saying that. But as a giant monster terrorises New York with an interesting cast in a real late 90s disaster movie styly action piece with a little bit of humour... I, I had a whale of a time. I enjoyed Jean Reno. I enjoyed Matthew Broderick, who I think he's still quite a... He still beats the drum for this movie, although he also thinks he was miscast. But I find him a charming lead. I think Hank Azaria is the one that I find a little more bizarre. But it, oh, it's also a Simpsons... Hmm. Um, <laughs> it's a Simpsons fest, isn't it? With It's funny, really. Cause, yeah, because Hank Azaria is like the voice of uh, Mo Sislak, and uh, he was yeah. the voice of Apu, and... Um, it's, it's funny because he's also in The Idol as well, which is um, Johnny Depp's daughter's big breakout mm. project. And, oh. and Harry Shearer as well, so to make it a real Simpsons special. Oh, yeah, um, of course. Um, but it's hugely enjoyable. It's just got very little to do with Godzilla, I think. Um, and obviously, it's probably more inspired by sort of scenes from Jurassic Park. Does it go on a bit? 
Does it make a lick of sense? Not really, but it's, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily put it down as, you know, uh, absolutely critical listening fodder, watching fodder, but I I don't think, I didn't hurt or offend me at all. Okay. Okay, so the other thing, um, I'm in the middle of writing a review about it, which I hope will be out on Eastern Kick soon, um, is a documentary called Keep Rolling. Now, I think, uh, so it's a documentary about Anne Hui, who's, I think, spoken about a couple of times before. Um, so she directed Boat People, she directed A Simple Life, she directed a lot of things. And she's basically, I would say, the number one Hong Kong female Hong Kong director, probably ever. Okay. Um, part of the new wave movement, people like Trey Hark that we've um, uh, you know we've covered many times before. So that sort of sort of eighties nineties um, Hong Kong movement. She's 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 acted, she's produced, but she's she's made this good collection of really interesting movies. Um, so this is a documentary. I think originally was out as part of the boat people criterion thing which again i know i talked about about six months ago when it when it got maybe longer now time changes um but they're doing it they're going to have it um shown as a a sort of like one of these one day cinema releases for some reason probably to support something else um now i've seen a few anhui films but not many and i've got to be honest with you you know these sort of documentaries you know how they can usually turn out where basically a bunch of talking heads get together and they say what a wonderful person this director is. Oh and yeah, then you'll because get, they will gush peach. And and you get um clips it get as always you get a bit of a clip show where you see bits of the films in order and people sort of talk around it. And you know, it it just all feels very rote and, and frankly feels just a bit... Well, it's blowing smoke up the director's arse, isn't it, really? <laughs> um, what I'm going to say about this documentary is it's all those things, except it's really good. <laughs> it's really good because A. Anhui has got a really kind of interesting career. So although she made it big in... well. She's never really made it big, but of course she has had her success in Hong Kong. She's actually from northern China and her family emigrated or immigrated to Hong Kong. Um, But the reason was that her mother was Japanese during the Sino-Japanese War. And like in her family, she wasn't allowed to talk in case anyone found out that she was Japanese. Um, and, And sort of always been married to her work. But it's really nice you see her family talk about her. And she's just like this really nice old lady. She's not that old, but she's, you know, she's getting on a bit. But she's classically Chinese and that she still looks after a 90-something-year-old mother. Um, She has no concept of money. So she lives in this little apartment in Hong Kong with her grumpy-faced cat and... Yeah, we sort of nice. get, we we get all the other stuff. We have people like Husei Sen and and Choi Hart going, oh, and such a brilliant director, and this was a really good movie. And then we see a lot of clips from a lot of her films that sort of echo where her life was. 
But we also see her on set directing a movie. We also see her doing, you know, hilarious things like tripping over, um, <laughs> oh, crikey, what's the lady name? Tang Wei. <laughs> you know, in the, when she's sort of making the, the golden age, she literally falls on top of her and falls on top of her. And, and, and you see these moments like where she's out having to advertise her latest film in mainland China. And, you know, she's just not into doing the whole junket thing. And she's knackered and she's tired and she's really self-effacing. And it's just, yeah, it, it does everything that, that these movies sometimes I get annoyed about and that and I'll never watch them on a blu-ray or a dvd but actually this one is really good um it's directed by one of her assistant directors um let me just have a look um man lim chung who I think was the assistant director on Anne's last film which i can't remember what it was called but it doesn't really matter anyway yeah if you get a chance i'd really recommend it um I would, um, we need to watch some Anne Hui films. Um, you've probably heard of more than you realise. What I'll also say is, what it's highlighted to me is how few of her films are available here in the UK. I'm fairly sure of films she actually directed, as opposed to was involved with, only A Simple Life and Now Boat People, is readily available all the other films of hers i've got are like imports from yesasia.com and stuff like that um and i think that's a bit of a gap so if you're listening arrow or more likely eureka um please bring some anhui films over um there's one in particular i think that you would like elwood um basically about a hong kong stunt woman starring michelle yo which I think is right up our alley, but um, I can't remember what it's called now, but uh, maybe I'll bring that to the show at a future date. But yeah, so a Western movie and a documentary. That's a little bit different. What about yourself? Well, for myself, it's been a bit of a weird week in terms of uh, film watching, mainly because I've been focusing on what's been leaving, what's going to be leaving the Arrow player, because you don't know if it's like say the exact date it's going to be leaving. It's just like leaving soon, and that's normally sort of like the kick up the ass you need to actually watch something sometimes um and it means that you have a week where you watch uh, films like the fate of lee khan uh which is by king q the uh, legendary uh hong kong director are you familiar with king q's work toy it seems like the sort of director that you would oh like, yeah yeah, he yeah. Did things like uh touch of zen and uh country yeah. me dragon gay them you can um, go and find an episode of easternkicks.com podcast where I talk um, <laughs> at great length. I think he's actually Taiwanese, isn't it? Or did he make... No, I think he is Hong Kong, but he got... I think he's actually mainland China, started in yep. Hong Kong, but actually had his main successes with um, Taiwanese movies. Which film was it you said? Uh, this is The Fate of Lee Khan. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, I'm aware, I'm aware of that one. It's... Um, that's definitely one of his Taiwanese movies, isn't it? This one uh, basically sees a, a group of rebels who are trying to procure um, a battle map that's being held by Li Khan, who's a high official under the Mongolian Empire Yuan of the Yuan Dynasty. Um, and it's very similar in setup in many ways to uh, Dragon Gate in the fact that you've got all this sort of cast of characters who are all got their own sort of agendas, and it's basically all happening under the roof of this inn that's been set up as 
with uh, the various rebels playing roles within the end. It's basically an all-girl, uh, female gang of uh, rebels this time. There is a, a guy with them who poses as their accountant. And for the most part, it's like, it's almost can be seen as like a drama. There's very little in terms of like martial arts action until we get to the finale. And then it sort of hits those uh, sort of classic tropes. And it make, does make it a little harder to sort of recommend because as I said, it being so drama driven um, and sort of in many ways is sort of like that blueprint really for the films such as, you know, like Hero or um, House of Flying Daggers. It's that sort of like art house badassery because um, everything's very sort of, with sort of like a sense of style and uh, drama rather than the sort of martial arts aspect, which is obviously, if that's what you turned up for, you really enjoyed the last, the finale of this film as it certainly delivers on that respect. But certainly um, King Who is not a director I've seen a great deal of. I've seen a few bits and pieces uh, and we obviously cover Conjunct with me on the, on the show. But uh, the other things I've got on... The list of things such as like Raining in the Mountain, Touches Zen, they're all like three hour epics. And it's currently at the time of recording, Grits in the heat wave, and we don't have air conditioning. And to read three hours of subtitles is just going to make me sleepy and fall asleep. <laughs> I, um, I'm trying to remember whether I covered Legend of the Mountain or Raining in the Mountain for the, for the show. I've seen them both. And they are both, I mean, you're not wrong, they're both a couple of hours long. Um, although I would say they're quite visual films. But yeah, it's too hot to watch anything longer than 90 minutes. I absolutely agree with you. There's certain, yeah, I mean, there's certain films that you can you can watch and enjoy and perhaps have them heightened. So it's just like tonight's selection, I feel, was heightened by our current weather condition. Or if you were mm. watching uh, something like do the right thing or ice cold in Alex where we get that sort of surround experience of like, wow, I totally know what you're going through. But yeah, anything that's like long and involves you to focus, it's just not happening in this weather at the moment. So when we get the rainstorms next week, I'll come back to it and look at real highbrow cinema for you all. No, I think, I think, I think you'll actually get a kick out of it. They're, um, he's, he's next. I mean, obviously, you know, I adore come drink with me, which is one of our first episodes, wasn't it? Um, and not a huge catalogue. So yeah, I think I think you'll enjoy them, but they you it needs to be cooler <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, I also took in another Kurosawa movie. Uh, this time, Yojimbo from 1961, which, for my money, is is another of those entry Kurosawa titles. If you like wanting to introduce people into Kurosawa, I think this is a really good starting point. Not only because of um, it features one of Mifune's best performances, but it really sort of highlights that working relationship between Kurosawa and Mifune that's very akin to like Scorsese and De Niro in Taxi Driver. It's like where you've got, uh, you've got Kurosawa obviously handling the visual style and the look of this film. And so much is also added to it by Mifune's performance here. As he's obviously this, in this here, he plays a uh, Ronin. He's a wandering samurai and he sort of, walks into this feudal Japan town where these two rival businessmen are sort of like trying to battle each other for control of the the town and in particular the gambling trade and he sort of ends up playing the two against each other and he's a 
unique character in the fact that he's not only a skilled swordsman, but he also has a really sharp mind. So seeing the sort of twists and turns of this plot as it goes along just makes for a really interesting time. And the fact that this film would be adapted by Sergio Leone into A Fistful of Dollars and then later by William Fredkin into Last Man Standing just shows the real sort of strength for this story here. But I certainly think it's one of Kurosawa's best and it's certainly one of his most accessible films, especially if you like that sort of like Eastern film with a tinge of the Western to it. Because there's a certainly, you can see where Sergio Leone is like drawing inspiration from when you look at Fistful of Dollars and Yojimbo sort of side by side. And I've got uh, Sanjiro next to watch after this, which is kind of like the semi sort of sequel to this. So I'm looking forward to watching that for the first time. But no, I had a really fun time watching uh, Yojimbo. It's one I'm going to bring to the show. So I'm obviously not going to go into too much detail now, but um, it's definitely one worth uh, checking out. I think it's on the BFI player. And uh, if it's still on the Arrow player, definitely check it out there as well. So No, I, I second everything you said. Great movie. And we definitely should... Uh... I'd, I'd really regret that we did Hidden Fortress now. <laughs> we, I think you, if we you, did, you, it's one of those things we're going to have to do Hidden Fortress at some point. And it I, just I, happened I, in the run that we did Hidden Fortress I, then. And, and uh, but obviously you've watched Ran and Jimbo, and you've got others in mind. And um, yeah, which are... I think just so superior. There's a lovely review of Jimbo on um, Letterbox by somebody who says it's as it, it's like as if Fistful of Got Dollars was any good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Fistful of Dollars has that whole border sort of war worked into it, doesn't it? Um, I mean, I know, I, think... I know, people love those films. I find yeah, them they do intolerably boring, but. That's just me. I find that if you watch Peckinpah Westerns and then you watch Leon Westerns, they're, they're kind of disappointing because it's a lot of people flailing around. But you watch a Peckinpah Western and everyone's like bloody gunshot wounds and stuff. And Peckinpah's Pe- like, Peckham- did you ever see anyone get shot and not get bloody? Yeah, Pe- Peckinpah Westerns are like Hong Kong cinema. It's just copious blood and violence and... Whereas Sergio Leone's stuff is is it's very measured, it's very beautiful, but it's like David Lean cinema. You know, I I don't know. I just have a hard time sometimes connecting to it. But yes, anything else, mate? I just wanted to say really. I mean, obviously, Jimbo should be no it features Namigoro uh, Rashomon, who plays the giant, who also has the best weapon. You got these scenes with the two gangs sort of squaring off, and everyone's got samurai swords, and he's uh, this, this huge hulking guy with a big hammer. And I thought that's fantastic every time I see that. Um, and there also has the great lines of, um, Ow, stop hurting me. Your slaps are like punches. And the uh, innkeeper <laughs> keeps shouting at the coffin maker for making too much noise next door. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we will. Um, we're definitely going to cover more Kurosawa on, in the show. It's definitely coming out. So we're going to be doing Jimbo and we'll do Ryan and we'll do him in. In big, in much more uh, detail. So, uh, if you feel that we're being a little brief now, do not fear, because we're going to actually do it, do uh, proper full in-depth shows on those in the uh, in the near future. The other thing which has sort of took my interest here, and this is a dive more into weird Japanese subculture, but I thought it was interesting enough to bring to the show. Um, and this was an article highlighted by the Yuri, who are an Asian horror fan group on Facebook, but. 
they had um, brought up an article from the Grimoire of Horror about the band Hannah Trash. I don't know if you uh, know of them at all, Stephen. You like experimental music, so. I, I do, but I've never heard of this lot. So keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so this group was originally uh, formed as the Hannah Trash Eye, which means the snot nosed. And they consist of the vocalist and visual artist Yamataka Ai and his guitarist Mitsuru Tabata. Now, to the fact that they're already, the fact that it's a guitarist and a singer really is a warning sign to begin with. But uh, the band that focuses on making music in a genre of music known as Japa Noise, which is an experimental genre of music that can be traced back to the 60s with a group, Ogono, who recorded two albums, Automization and Object, which blended traditional instruments with less traditional sounds, should we say, such as like vacuum cleaners, oil drums, a set of dishes and this was all manipulated with uh, sort of like them playing around with the tape speed. So if you think like Bowie's German Berlin years, where he was like making like scary monsters and, you know, the stuff we all forget Bowie made. Low and Heroes and Lodger. Lodger's my favourite Bowie album. The stuff it is, he was doing with Brian Eno and the like, right? Yeah, when they found him in the closet and he forgot his name. <laughs> but basically the... The, this came out of the punk scene, which they basically felt had suffered from overexposure. It became too popular, and instead looked to the German experimentalists such as uh, Ertsun Nabatten, which I'm really going to apologise if I screwed that German up because my German is as good as my Japanese, which is horrible. Mm-hmm. And they basically worked as stagehands for the band, and they thought, well, you know, let's set out and create our own unique musical soundscapes, which is a very fancy way of saying they made a lot of noise and artsy beatneck folk were like yeah man and just start clicking their fingers and stuff now to call them musical would certainly be a questionable status as the same way that you know you say that tom waits is a talented singer um but, and the but show- he is <laughs> but he is he I is. love Tom Waits <laughs> I love Tom Waits too but to explain why you like Tom Waits is a is an argument to be had really isn't it well it's I like, guess you know why you like when you say the Pixies or Sonic Youth it's like when you yes. say no this is stop. just some guy stop screaming picking. and stop picking all my favourites say extreme noise Pixies. terror <laughs> I have three CDs I know. in my car I have uh, Ben Folds the Pixies yeah. and the Smashing Pumpkins greatest hits <laughs> I, I I get I get what you mean though. I mean there are. I think in the realms of alternative, you know, we have even Tom Waits and and Pixies are somewhat mainstream alternative. But there are things like Alien Sex Fiend and Norwegian Death Metal. Um, you know, bands whose songs go on for. Th- 30 seconds i was reminded i think i told you i watched the documentary about the klf which was a 90s dance band art project in the uk and their last performance was with extreme noise terror which is just a fella screaming over some fast music so i'm yeah i have my limits but i know the kind of stuff you mean yeah um well the band themselves they released three albums uh titled one two and hold, yeah, hold on for this. Three. <laughs> I thought I thought it was going to be something different. <laughs> it's like it's like um, Billy Talent. They released Volume One, Volume Two, and Volume Three. Now the music is 
and very akin to Zen filmmaking, as in it's basically improv. Uh, they so there's nothing regarding like musical composure, and people basically turned up a lot mainly for the stage performances, which consisted of them making noise with anything they could get their hands on, so drills, oil cans, sheets of glass, which they would throw at the audience or they would destroy the stage. Uh, there's videos of uh, the lead singer I basically putting the microphone in his mouth and screaming as loud as he can. Um, I've got some musical examples here. We got a um, first one. We've got is a track called Combat. Uh, we also have Vortex Shit. And uh, hold on, chats. This is No Yard. So, yeah, it, this is, as I said, it's not very... You're either, like, thinking, going, yeah, this is real groovy stuff. And, or you're thinking, what the hell is this? But the duo fall into that category of being a band better known from the stage performances. So you think of, like, Ozzy Osbourne buying the head off the bat, the Brian Jones and Massacre fighting each other on stage, Slipknot destroying the TFI Friday studio. They also destroyed the Portsmouth Guildhall, I found out this week. They did uh, Portsmouth Guild Hall before they did download, and um, they created a riot. So the people in the upper balcony were throwing stuff at the people down below. That's the story. That's for my day. that that's my old manor. That is. <laughs> that's <it> now, <laughs> well, they redecorated it for them. That's why I went to university. I saw many a band at the Portsmouth Guild Hall. So this duo, as I said, they're best known for their stage performances, which are much as much of an assault on the stage as they are to musicality. And the audiences who turned up had to sign waivers, including the band, that they would not only not sue the band for any injury suffered, but they would also not damage the property. And both of those waivers the band would break over the course of their their shows. Um, including their antics, uh, Yamataka strapped a circular sword to his back, which he, while bouncing around, came loose and almost cut his leg off. They found a dead cat at one show, which they threw into the crowd after, depending on who you speak to, they either attacked him with a machete or a chainsaw. I would love to be in that crowd when you get a dead cat thrown at you. They also threw plate grass glass at the crowd. The real highlight came when they drove into a gig with a backhoe bulldozer, which they proceeded to chase fans around with as the bigger part, the backhoe part spun around surprisingly not killing anyone, before they drove it through the back of the the gig. Um, then, disappointed by the lack of noise that this heavy machine created, decided to smash up the stage and throw more glass around before uh, Yamataka got into the crowd with lit a Molotov cocktail, which he tried to throw at the stage before security basically beat the hell out of him. And this led to them basically being banned from every club in Japan. Then they disappeared for a bit, and in the 90s they returned as the Boredoms, where they were basically banned from any of their previous stage antics and had to basically focus on, you know, as uh, he referred to it, be normal, um, and instead chose to like focus on the musicality and got some sort of cred just for their actual musical talent. So they fell into more of the sort of likes of like the Ice Cubes, which were very musically interesting, but they also had that 
weird singer screaming over everything. You mean the sugar cubes? The sugar cubes. Sorry, Mike. Yes, Bjorkso band. Yeah, Bjorkso went. Yeah, I mean, yeah, with Einar going, I am a potato. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, sadly, little footage actually exists the band because it's obviously the nineteen eighties. There is one grainy shot concert film, which is like. 30 minutes of footage where it's basically them destroying the stage and then these really embarrassed stagehands like sweeping up all the glass and stuff. But there is like, you can get photographs of the various concert footage, uh, including the backhoe incident, which there's quite a few shots of as well. So if you're looking for a musical deep dive, um, feel free to uh, check them out. Their music is available on YouTube. Sadly, it's not available on Spotify, but... uh, yeah, it is available out there for you to check out. And there are some, as I said, there's some great articles out there, um, including Grimoire of Horror have done a deep dive onto this. And there's a couple of YouTube videos as well, which uh, go into the history of the band as well, which are worth checking out. Sounds cool. You're the Tony Blackburn of Japanese freak music. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I liked Melt Banana, who are another of those uh, 30 seconds of screaming noise bands who fall into the same sort of category as the Locust, who had the right. track The Half-Eaten Sausage Would Like to See You in His Office as one of their bands. <laughs> That's why I like um Do you know, I mean, completely different tangent, but Half Man, Half Biscuit, who have wonderful titles like that, but they're more from a sort of a Northern England folk... Well, it's like folk rock, and they have titles like "All I Want for Christmas Is a Duke La Praga Wake It" and things like that. But they're actually really. And Dicky Davis Eyes. That's another one for you. Cool. So on that note, it's time to find the projector for tonight's feature presentation, which is 1963's "Antango." Tonight we're looking at 1963's Mantango, uh, directed by Ishio Honda and based on the short story by William Hope Hodgson. Um, his original story, The Voice of the Night, originally appearing back in November 1907 in an issue of Blue Book. Uh, if you're not obviously familiar with Hodgson's work, he based a lot of his, his uh, stories around the sea, drawing inspiration from working as a cabin boy when he was uh, coming up and it's basically when he was, as I said, working as a cowboy that the bullying from the older sailors led him to this fitness regime that saw him being noticed as one of the early adopters of bodybuilding. And it's from here that he uh, goes on to sort of further his writing career and sadly would be killed while serving in World War One. But at the same time, when it comes to the story here, Honda, it's like, when we saw with Godzilla, which he draw inspiration from the fishing boats that sailed into the nuclear testing area. Uh, this time, he goes a little lighter with his inspiration as he saw an, a newspaper article about a group of rich students, and one of them had stolen the father's boat and gone sailing with his friends only to have to be rescued by the Coast Guard. And that really forms the basis of our story here, as we have a group of friends who are uh, set sail and uh, get caught in a storm and end up washing upon a mysterious island which uh, seems completely abandoned but 
the fungi life is ever pre prevalent. And when they stumble across a uh, wrecked ship, they soon start discovering that the island is hiding more than a few secrets, as they will soon learn, um, soon uncover. So, Stephen, uh, this was a first-time watch for yourself, Ryan Sam. It certainly was. I'd never even heard of the movie before, and I, I think you told me, "Oh, yeah, it's on archive.org, which is always good." Yeah. And I went and downloaded it. Well, I searched for it, found a film with that name, downloaded it, and it was a completely different movie. <laughs> luckily, was... luckily, I realised this very quickly because it wasn't directed by Honda. <laughs> Was, I'm just still trying to figure out what film you could have been watching. I, I mean, the only film I can think of that comes close is uh, Mandingo, uh, which that, is about that's slave fighting. <laughs> that's a different thing altogether. No, no, it was like um, it was it was a it was a Japanese monster movie. I but it oh, had cool. American stuff intercut with it. I will find it again someday. But um, I was such a hurry. I ended up renting it from Amazon. It was on Amazon Prime for. Not very much money, although I made the silly mistake of renting it in high definition. Um, that extra pound, I can't believe, was very well spent. <laughs> it looked like, as as often with some of those things you find on Amazon Prime, it looks like it's been recorded off of a VHS, but it's fine. It's just a shame, because I think I can see that with a bit of a restoration work, that it could actually look really colourful and glorious and a bit, um, I don't know... It, yeah, it, it rather than the sort of the rather dull print that's on there. However, I say all this, and I've got to be honest with you. When you tell me we're going to watch a film called Attack of the Mushroom Men or whatever it is, Mushroom People. Yeah, Attack of the Mushroom People. I'm like, oh Jesus Christ, this is going to be <laughs> camp, and it might be all right and entertaining, but I, I, I wasn't expecting it to be in the upper echelons of monster movies. But to my surprise, this is fucking brilliant. <laughs> this is a real hidden gem. And I can't believe it hasn't had some kind of renaissance. Because, like the original Godzilla, it's about way more than some mushroom people on a desert island <laughs> or on a, on a jungle island. You know, it's it's this sort of social commentary of the time and it's got some really good actors in it the the effects are okay but the just the action the suspense the sets the 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 characters i found it absolutely amazing so yeah nice one this film was also uh released under the title of fungus of terror by media blasters <laughs> Right. In the UK, I'm not sure that's a better title. But, uh... <laughs> I think I think the whole fungus and mushroom thing should be left to the side. <laughs> the only thing is, of <laughs> course, um, Last of Us, of course, which has now got a sort of second life as a TV show, is that some of the yeah. zombies there are, are mushroom-like, aren't they? With uh, with the mushroom head. So it yes, has, uh, it, zombie fungus, isn't it? In Last of yeah. Us. Yeah. So, so I, I do feel that this film may, in some way, have. Um, inspired maybe the makers of the game i don't know i i just i know um there's a couple of directors who've been linked with it isn't there um uh yeah soderbergh soderbergh is... wanted to remake it but toho turned down his request um when it comes to copyright in in japan and france it's one of the toughest sort of copyright laws is basically the creator 
owns the project whereas if mm. you look at like the uk and america if you create something then you don't own it essentially it's the studio who who owns it you get paid off for it mm. and this is why we've got the current problem with uh, stallone and rocky where he you think oh stallone owns rocky but he doesn't it's owned by um gm i believe it is who own it so there's a whole sort of legal battle with that at the moment over the rights uh, to the character. And, yeah, the, when you look at the cover of this one, you see, like, the mushroom people and the, you see several of the cast members in, like, a in like a siege sort of shot. And this shot's not even in the film. They just made this, yeah. this weird this promo shot up that is on the cover of the DVD and that, but it's not actually in the film at all. Mm. Um, which, which just, isn't... um totally unusual but yeah <laughs> well then again we look at some of the some of the great posters and it's sort of like Mofra. Um Mofra looks a lot more fierce on her poster than she does in the film mm. um, and when you look at Godzilla versus the thing and they've got the black box and it's like that monster is too terrifying to see and it's like no it's just Mofra. it's a giant moth <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know Everyone's going to make a bug, but I mean, this is obviously. The, let's not forget, this isn't the first time that Honda has done movies outside of the kaiju movies. Because when we think of his contribution to cinema, we obviously think of like his kaiju movies. So, like the eight Godzilla movies he did during the Shower era, as long as well as things like King Kong Escapes, Mothra, Rodan. Um, but he also did like a played around a lot of different genres, such as drama, made war movies, documentaries, and comedies. Uh, including the smash hit in Japan, I bombed Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Less so in America, I'm sure. Yeah, one, one of those movies for one audience and one audience alone. <laughs> um, but he did also, as I said, he dabbled previously in horror before with like the H-Man in 58 and the Human Vapor in 1960. And much like this film, it has this like Cronenberg obsession with characters being transformed or mutated into bizarre forms that you could say in many ways sort of like would go into inspire the likes of um Shinya Tsukamoto who would take it to a whole nother level uh, with the likes of Tetsuo oh I, I, absolutely I mean this is I mean I again re reading up on it that the, the body horror part of it nearly got the film banned because <laughs> yeah they first little too close to a the, the victims of Hiroshima with the radiation burns. Yeah, because you know, when when people start getting mushroomized, um, the, the yeah the the, the sort, of sort of pseudo boils appear on their skin. Yeah, it does look like radiation burns. So I can I said, but yeah, it's you know, it's one of those one of those sort of ah, sort of primal fears, isn't it, that your body getting changed into something else and obviously Cronenberg's made a career out of that kind of thing but not 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 alone um yeah I mean then... let's let's not remember I mean Cronenberg's main obsessions is like disease and body um body horror and just like mm. mutations and this also like stems from the fact his father suffered from brittle bone disease so he's always had this sort of fascination with um what the human body can sort of do to itself. And it's sort of been carried on in many ways by some Brandon when you look at um, his mm. films such as like Possessor and Antiviral. Um, but oh, uh, I think, absolutely. Do you think that when it comes to like 
when uh, when it comes to like Honda's movies that because he made like Godzilla movies, he made kaiju movies that um, in many ways he's sort of like dismissed. Even though when you look at those films and how he shoots them, it's a director of considerable skill who's just obviously working in a genre which is so dismissed, uh, dismissed so easily, uh, especially by you know viewers in the West. Oh, I think that's absolutely the case and probably the case of a lot of Japanese directors. We've talked before, you know, everyone knows about Kurosawa, everyone knows about Ozu, right? Um, And there are directors, especially Honda. Honda is famous for making Godzilla movies. But we've watched the first Godzilla movie and that is not a silly movie about with men dressed up, kicking over... Uh, you know, like a mini miniature version of Tokyo. I mean, some of the Godzilla movies are silly and daft, but Honda is part of some really great movies that happen to be monster movies. Um, and he's got quite a, as you say, he's got quite a career, you know, a storied career in the films that he's made. But maybe he has been typecast in the West as a guy that made the first few. Um, Monster movies. Um, they did release H Man, didn't they, over here a few years ago? Because I had to review that. I didn't have to review it for Eastern Kicks. It makes it sound like I did it at gunpoint. But I reviewed that for Eastern Kicks, which again, it's got sort of that kind of body horror kind of concept in it. So yeah, I think um, I think you're absolutely right. I think he's one of those directors that might be due a kind of retrospective, you know, to say actually. He made other good movies as well. And I'd absolutely say this is an example thereof. And, and yeah. you know, the, the, the stuff here, this is as good as Cronenberg, as good as, um, what's the lady that did, um, De Cornell, the lady that did Titan. Which I oh, yeah, she, yeah, of course, yes. Yeah, and, and there's, you know, there's, there's a couple of others sort of that live in that world, like you say, Brandon Cronenberg as well. David Lynch, maybe to a degree. Um, Sakamoto, you've talked about. Just I'm just listing off body horror directors, but I think this film belongs there. And I think that you know, you know what I feel. Or we both feel about the original Godzilla film. They're fucking good movies. They just happen to be in genre, and and there isn't that. I I, I don't know. I I don't know enough about Honda's um, back catalogue. Has he got a? A samurai movie in there, or a, or a or a or a dark police thriller, or a yakuza film in there. I don't know. That might be what just holds against him. But it, the irony is, of course, we have someone like um, Takashi Miike, who's done nothing but genre movies, really, and we think the world of him. It's true, and I think it's because um, he made he sort of like transitioned from the outlaw period into a more sort of highbrow. Period. And I think mm. it was like when he when you hit like ninety nine, you know, obviously prior to ninety nine, there are obviously films that are showing that he's capable of more than like violent yakuza movies and really sort of out there sort of um, sort of movies. The movies he's, he likes to call that he made movies for boys out in the country. Mm. Um, but it's really when you get like to ninety nine that his he really starts to shine as a, a director. I think that's the thing with. With uh, when it comes to Miguel, though, he's sort of like been had got more films in his filmography, and he's also in a different period where he's not sort of like tied to what the studio wants so much because Miguel is much more of a hired gun than like Honda. Honda is obviously like him and uh, Kurosawa, like the two guys who got like the big budgets at Toho Studios, 
Everyone else has had to work with minor budgets, but like Kurosawa got to go off and make like samurai epics, and they gave uh, under money to make like giant kaiju movies, and uh, that's where they they built like the big water tank and stuff over at the uh, studio. But and, and I, I guess another thing that probably does show that contem- at least contemporary wise and in Japan he was thought so high. I mean, this film's um, one of the stars is. Um, Yoshio Suchia. Oh God! Now I'm, I'm doing. I'm I'm invoking my inner Elwood. Uh, Yoshio Suchia, who was in not only lots of Godzilla movies, but he was in loads of Kurosawa films. You know, he's in Seven Samurai and Yojimbo and The Hidden Fortress and High and Low. He's in all those as well. So this is not an actor who would be. He's he's not slumming it at the uh, fag end of his career in a silly little monster movie. This is a guy at the absolute height of his powers. He was one of the biggest actors in um, in Japan at the time. So I, I guess at least contemporaneously and within Japan, Honda must have been considered more than purveyor of tat. I hope so anyway. Well, you... Uh... We, I mean, you say that, but when we look at how the, when you're asked to like direct a Godzilla movie in Japan, it's viewed as being the same sort of honor as being asked to direct a Bond movie. It's a completely different uh, world when it comes to like action movies, and certainly like uh, like Super Sentai and the whole like two, um, the whole like special effects sort of like movies genre over there is completely viewed in a completely different sort of like lens and yeah. uh, then like compared this... to the West where it's just all like Michael Bay blowing stuff up. This is this this is true and, and their their whole relationship with pop culture is very different. You know, you think of how um deep and wide both manga and anime go in, in Japanese culture, the, the the subjects, the people that read it, that kind of thing. It's very different to the West. So yeah, fair, fair play. But yeah, I was just I was just surprised. It's got this has got a really strong cast in it as well. For a film I'd never heard of with a stupid name. <laughs> so, we need Whoa. to we need to, we need to rescue its reputation. Well, I think Tarantino's on. He's currently on that uh, path at the moment. He's he brought it up on one of his episodes of uh, Video Archive podcast. Right. And seeing how anything that that they mentioned on that show like becomes like one of those like movies that everyone has to hunt down things such as like steel and rollerball like to the end of the world it's they're doing a real great job reviving a lot of titles that people would have otherwise have uh forgot about and i think um when it comes to this one this is definitely one that is is worth tracking down and it did as you point out already Stephen, it's readily available everywhere which is uh, always welcome because normally when it comes to his back catalogue there is quite a few glaring omissions that um, are still not available over here and you have to get them on multi-region uh, like the Mysterians but the film itself it uh, opens with a university um, professor named uh, Kenji Mura being visited by a man who asked him about the events which led him to wind up in a mental hospital and he regales uh, this man with the tale of how he came to end there, how him and his friends went um, on a day trip in a yacht and got caught up in this storm, and caused, which uh, damaged the yacht and caused them to wash upon this island. And uh, it's re- here that we 
I don't know how you feel about the the sorts of uh, openings where you essentially start at the end and then go back, because he's sort of like he's you get the feeling that you're on one hand that you're being told exactly how everything's going to play out, and I have to say that to the film's credit, it really sort of like throws kind of a red herring out there in two um, two counts really, because in one it's sort of like yes, he may be the last person there, but what happens to the rest of the crew isn't. Uh, exactly what we think at this point so so yeah i, I mean it's it's a classic trope of this you know his i'm the last man standing and here's my story um is absolutely thing is that you know it's a thing it does it spoil the fact that you know this guy's gonna live well it doesn't mean that you know anything about the others and part of the thrill is finding out what happens to them and to be fair Although it doesn't actually work if you just watch the first scene and the last scene, <laughs> there is there is an extra twist as well at the at the very end. So it still it still pays off. I'm fine with it. I'm fine with that as a as a sort of build up of the mystery. It's a very sort of Twilight Zoney kind of opening, isn't it? Um, this whole story is it could be like an episode of like Twilight Zone or Outer Limits, really, couldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it it really you you could you could trim it down to a good 40 minutes um in fact um as we record this last week the latest season of black mirror came out and the latest season of black mirror is not very as technologically based as before and i felt this could have fit into some of those stories as well because it's about sort of social oh yeah yeah one of those people getting upset about demon 79 then I, I'm not getting. I I think the new series is wonderful, but a lot of yeah, people are yeah. really ups, A lot of people are really upset about it because they don't feel it's fitting the um, uh, the the motif, the, the core motifs of what Black Mirror has been about. But now, oh my God, some of it. One one of them's just a serial killer film with the, with a really standard tropey twist, and it was still fucking brilliant. <laughs> I loved it. So I from. Um, yeah. I'm sold, but maybe I'm the audience. I don't know, but yeah, this 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 has that kind of Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, Black Mirror, that that kind of filter. You know, here's a story of ordinary folk in extraordinary circumstances, and it ain't going to turn out well for any of them. <laughs> so, right off the bat, we're introduced to crew on this this yacht um that we've got we've got mirror who we've been introduced to already who's uh one of the crew hands uh we've got the shipmates assistant senzo we've got the writer uh at Suro, which when he's introduced he's there writing his uh his book and part of it blows away into the ocean but he finds that really funny for some reason I, I don't know I, why, I, because he's writing it by hand. I I thought that was a bit of a weird reaction to losing all your fucking work. <laughs> but it was a pretty lady that made it happen, so maybe. That's excusable. You know what, yeah. when I saw that scene, though, because we did, yeah. um, over on uh, World Cinema Film Club, we did A Guru Run For God. Yeah. And where Herzog was like saying on his... Uh, Football team's bus, how he was writing it, and his teammate threw up over his papers. That's right. I yeah, was like, yeah. That, that just came straight to mind as I saw his like papers flying off. But yeah, he has a pretty, pretty go. Uh, cause him to lose his papers, not some drunken teammate throwing up over them. Um, we've also got um, Masafumi who owns the yacht, um, and uh, 
for the team crumpet, we have professional singer Mary and student Ekio. Mary is um, kind of like, kind of like a really interesting character because she's really manipulative. She knows that she's she's pretty and um, uses it to her advantage. And Ekio is kind of like you know the uh, damsel in distress of the group. It's is best way to sort of describe her. Yeah, I mean that that what's sort of the first interesting thing about this movie is that these are not sort of traditional old school Japanese roles. These are very much people of the 60s that you know there's there's the, there's the TV and movie and nightclub singer star there's a there's a professional writer who you know is is writing very much you know, on pens and paper not with with elegant scripting we've got um rich people here um the only person which is kind of old-fashioned is 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 she's a student isn't she the other girl um and they're taking the mick out of her saying oh she won't even kiss her boyfriend she's so square (laughs) and and yeah it's just it's just it's sort of building up this uh, do you mean, like when we watch Giant, Giants and Toys? You know, the, yeah. there's there's these new sorts of people in 1960s Japan that maybe didn't exist 15 years ago, um, and this boat is full of them, and they're completely detached from the rest of their culture by being on this boat. I've got to say, they are shit sailors. <laughs> oh yeah, they, they are the they are the worst because I have no idea what their plan actually was <laughs> and how they got so lost. It's, you're going to love the fact that they lose their mast when the storm hits, and then they all go downstairs, and they go, instead of conserving the power on the radio, they're using it to have a little jazz session down below deck. It's like, surely you should be a little more worried than think, oh, there's no time for, for a good jam session. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and again, and again, you know, jazz music. I mean, we've spoken about it before in, in other Japanese movies. That that's that's just your symbol that these people are are dilettantes and time wasters and not part of the uh, you know they're, they're they're part of modern Japan, not traditional Japan. But yeah, they really. You, I you didn't. Feel, I didn't feel very sorry for them, mate. <laughs> they they were architects of their own downfall. So. Washing up on this uh, seemingly deserted island, um, they come across like ponds of fresh water, and they discover that there's mushrooms everywhere. But the skipper uh, Nico says, "You know, don't eat the mushrooms because we don't know what they're going to do to you, and you know they could be poisonous." And no, and do you know this is probably like the first bit of good advice anyone has in this group. Because you know that one of these idiots is no doubt going to see mushrooms and try and eat them. Which they uh, will at some point, but not this moment. So, it is funny. So, you know, like you were having those flashbacks to Aguirre Wrath of God. Yeah. Um, I was having flashbacks. So, I'm, I'm quite a fan of some really strange YouTube channels. And one of the YouTube channels I follow is a guy who basically goes foraging in the south of England. And every few episodes he has to do one because he, he obviously he knows what he's doing he's a man of the country and he knows which mushrooms are poisonous and which are not yeah <laughs> and he has to do special episodes to explain to people don't just pick mushrooms most of them will kill you <laughs> and i was just having got well i wish atomic shrimp was here with this lot because one of them's going to eat it and they're and they're quite bountiful aren't they these mushrooms they, they sort of turn up everywhere and you just think some uh, yeah you just don't eat if you don't know what they are don't eat them 
Uh, this has been a public safety announcement on behalf of the Asian Cinema Film Club. <laughs> but yes, I was having those flashbacks saying, oh, no, don't. Yeah. These are free, let it be. Mm. These are for, eat some more. So while they wandering on the island, they come across a uh, wrecked yacht, and on board they find a bunch of notes that uh, really has a lot of links to this, like nuclear testing that's been happening near the island. And it's also around here that uh, they encounter had their first encounter with the title of mushroom people uh, before the this mushroom person just mysteriously disappears, and it's never explained how or why. Just appears and then just gives a clips a bed and uh, buggers off. But uh, all the while this is going on, the group are growing more restless because the food stores are trying to the food's running out, and it's not helped by the fact that at this point everyone is sort of like out for their own agenda. Um, we got people like Kasai who's refusing to help help with the food, um, and becomes more interested in um, stealing all the ca the few canned rations that they have and uh yeah it's is, also... is, is he the, is he the one who's paying money for stuff as if the money's of any value is that another one i can't remember oh he's it. yeah he's the one who's um he starts running his own little black market where he's having people pay him money that's for, right. the, for the canned goods and all the while, we've also got this is where uh, Mary really sort of comes into her own and starts like um, trying to start manipulating the situation to her own advantage. And I think she's her presence in this film really adds an interesting edge to it. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's flashbacks in this film to where she's she's um i mean they they introduce her as a as a tv and radio star at the beginning but clear she's like a nightclub singer or something isn't it and and you see in the flashbacks that she's quite the manipulative temptress and manipulator and she just goes full on to that in this film you know in in this crisis she will use her feminine wiles to uh, manipulate the men to get what she wants yeah, it's interesting about the fact that there's a large portion of this film is just based on, you know, the group's dynamic falling apart. Mm. Um, the, the actual mushroom people don't turn up until the third quarter. And the mushrooms themselves don't become what they do as well, also is really around that sort of third quarter. But until then, the main sort of dynamic is sort of like, what happened on this island? Why are there so many mushrooms? And how are we going to survive? And the general consensus is it's every man for himself. I mean, they fall apart pretty quickly. But you're right. The the bulk of this movie is a bunch of pretty, on the whole, pretty selfish people put into a survivor-type scenario. And, I mean, they've fallen apart as soon as the first storm came on the boat, haven't they? But it never really gets any better. Um, again, I'm sure this is social commentary at the time. But yeah, the, the actual mushroom people, like you said, there's a brief glimpse of one early on. But they don't really become a thing. I mean, really, really a thing to write at the end. Um, they're not even, I would say, like the sort of threatening presence in the background that's always there. Are, is, are they? Mushrooms are, but the 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 mushroom creatures i i don't really remember 
being a huge menace until very near the end of the film. Yeah. The mushrooms themselves, and though they are hallucinogenic mushrooms, and it's unclear. I got the hint in hint that they were sort of like linked to the nuclear testing. That this is, you know, because the nuclear testing has caused these hallucinogenic mushrooms to grow and have the effects that they do. Because you know, radiation makes things like have yeah, alternate it's... powers. I mean, it's how Spider-Man Spider. It's how Spider-Man and the Hulk and all the all the it's how the Marvel Universe started. So yeah, but again, it's 1963, right? We're in the atomic age, and Japan, more than any other country, it's not just they suffered Nagasaki and Hiroshima. They've had all those islands near them, like Bikini Atoll bombed, and and that that whole area has been used for nuclear testing. The only other place any kind of level is is the arse end of America where nobody lives. So it's, it's genuinely affected them. So no wonder they've used it. Um, but yeah, there's, it's absolutely suggested that, that a nu- nuclear testing has, has caused these mushrooms to uh, have uh, special powers. It's also the sixties, mate, and magic mushrooms and LSD. And these are, these are things that are being sort of imported from the West, aren't they? This, the sort of hallucinogenic and surreal. Well, this is, this is the whole thing isn't it it's all like you have all this crisis and infighting and then they start eating the mushrooms and like suddenly everything's okay man and they have you get to you don't really concern yourself with the fact you're stuck in a desert island you can have flashbacks to showgirls in tokyo yeah i mean it's not called attack of the timothy learys but there's a bit of it which might be but it's it's yeah, we, we, I think you have to take it as it's it's an artifact of the time, and again, an artifact artifact of Japanese society. So, whereas sort of this time a bit later, we'd have that sort of counterculture movement in in the West, which probably you know things like I don't know, like Easy Rider and films like that, which were kind of playing up and saying, "Hey, drugs are quite cool, man." In Japan, yeah. I don't think we've ever had that drugs are quite cool, man thing. I mean, even when we were watching. Um, uh, the uh, oh, what were those films with the biker chicks and stuff? Um, oh, the Stray Cat Rock. Stray Cat Rock. You know, let's face. The, the, you can have as much crime as you like, but don't sell drugs, right? Then, then you've just reached another level. <laughs> drugs are bad in Japan, and there's no, there's no relaxing around it. It's very strange. It's funny that drugs are often seen as like the bad thing when you look at like Goodfellas. The fact that the mob wants nothing to do with the drugs trade that Henry's obviously trying to bring in. I mean, um, it's a, it, 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 I mean that's a common Yakuza film trope, isn't it? That yeah, yeah, yeah you can you can do the drugs you can, trade. You can do all the fighting you want. You can do all the protection rackets, all the kidnapping and murder. But the minute you try and get any heroin in, you're you're, you're cut off and you're going to be punished by Yakuza society itself. And you just it's, think. Weird. It's funny though when you look at Yakuza where they present themselves as legitimate businessmen. So you have like you know, the Honda business um center, which is like the, the mob hangout. They don't hide like the hangout, they have it as like the business center. And anyone who's played like the Yakuza games will know how true this is. And... Yeah, yeah, you go you go to the headquarters of the of the Honda gang. And all the names are very well known, and the structures and, and, and the relationships between them all. And as long as you don't do drugs, 
the minute you, minute you bring heroin in, it's the end of the world. It's it's um, I don't know how real that is. <laughs> I don't know how how accurate it is. Of that's just a sort of cinematic. Um, how real is that a hard-ass Yakuza gangster would be also obsessed with slot car racing? Or, um, oh, what else do they do? I love those games. <laughs> I, I recently started the first, the, um, the, the Kwame. Um, oh, the, the, rem- the remake of the first one, yeah. Yeah, because I, I got completely lost. Because it's all in Japanese, so you've got to pay attention. It's not like mm. you can play around to it. But um, I got completely lost the first time, so I restarted. And I'm determined to... To, to get into them the way that you obviously love them, so I I do. I mean, I, funny enough, I've I've got Ishin on the way. I've ordered that, which is an old PSP one, but that's set back in feudal Japan. But it's the same game. <laughs> there's also <laughs> there's also one which is um, bum 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 bum. Oh god, I can't remember. It's based on one of the mangas. One of the stupid mangas where people can hit each other very hard, but all the same models. But yes, but the Yakuza games are wonderful, and they they work as sort of sort of animated movies. And then, as you say, you can play slot car racing, or there's dating sims in in them, or old arcade games that are playable, or really obscure Japanese board games you have to learn <laughs> but you can I I tend just to plow through the main plot which is probably why I've got stuck on Yakuza 4 because there's four plots and I'm on the boring one and I can't get through it right, okay. anyway anyway another story for another day mm. and there's a obviously there's a Kashi Miike movie of Like a Dragon which is his version of the first Yakuza film so. yeah we talked about it back in um, <laughs> long month. time ago yeah long time um, ago it's um it's actually pretty terrible but as as always with Miike when he does these strange adaptations he gets the characters on point it's just you can't polish a turd <laughs> I wanted to say that someone knows well about this the uh, film. When we get into like the final act here, Murai really sort of becomes like this sort of character. Like she was like there to lure them to the island all along. Mm, like, like a when siren. You look at her, yeah, yeah, when you look at her character, sort of like she's it. It almost feels like this was her plan all along was to get them to the island and get them hooked on on mushrooms. When she's the same as every other character in this. This film and the fact that she washed up there, she had no intentions of going to Ireland, she just ended up there. Um, she just continued to play the situation for her own advantage, like she does every situation. Mm, and but she, yeah, that is that is that is true. You do get that feeling, don't you? But she certainly be it feels like she's been one with the island a lot longer. It is, it's always you know, there's always like that, um, you know, like on a event horizon where uh, Sam Neill's character, like. It feels that where he becomes like possessed, and it's sort of like, oh, it was like my plan to bring you here all along. And it feels like she's becomes that sort of character, even though mm. she's, that, that, that's, she's that's never been set up like that. But it's, she just becomes that. It's technically impossible, but yeah, she becomes the most infected. Although interestingly, she seems to be the least physically infected. Certainly, sort of. Yeah, she's like the, um, What's the the word? It's she's like. Um, Patient zero sort of thing, isn't she? Yeah, uh, she's quick. kind of like the carrier one. Mm. She's not affected, but she's there to to make sure other people get infected. Um, so she, 
So her character is, is really kind of interested. We also have um, another subplot where um, one of the characters goes off and is trying to repair the yacht. And when... I'm trying to remember which one. Um, uh, when Eiko goes out to the yacht, he sees it floating across. He sees a note uh, left that says, um, basically outlined what happened to them. And he says, and I drowned at sea. And it's all like, how can you say you drowned at sea when you left a <laughs> note on the wall? <laughs> yeah. It's that like, is did a... you really doubt your chances here? <laughs> that you just thought, well, I'm probably not going to make it. So I'll just like cover that myself. I get, I get. It's like, it's like, like the sort of um, explorer. You know, the people that went to find the North Pole, and they write, you know, I'm oh, just going out for a while, which is code for I'm just going to go and die. <laughs> it's like <laughs> that. That's what I felt. That was like. So um, I'm not going to ruin the, ruin the ending here because I think it's a really great twist. But um, yeah, needless to say that um, if you eat, if you eat the mushrooms, then then you will start to mutate and become mushroom people of the title. Uh, because once you start eating the mushrooms, you can't give it up. They're super addictive. So, I mean, did you like the actual secret behind the mushrooms? The, you know, what they actually end up being, the part they play in this plot? Um, I, I really love this movie, but I could have done without the mushroom people okay <laughs> this is gonna be a weird thing for me to say but it felt a bit like one of a shittier episode of doctor who <laughs> they actually were realized but i think you could have done it without making them walking talking mushrooms <laughs> no they weren't talking were they but no, they talk they, they they're basically like um they're definitely walking anyway, and yeah, yeah, they're, they're walking mushrooms. I'm trying to think that there's um, that almost look like um, like samurai the way that with the with the cap, mm. looks like uh, the old um, paddy field workers sort of hat, and yeah, it's. I, I mean, I like the design of these big like lumbering and, things, but and and that's. The bit I wonder if this was if they found the original film and 4K'd it up and brought the colour back to it. I wonder how gloriously bright. I wonder if it looked like one of those, um, like Land of the Lost or something like that. You know, one of these sort of psychedelic 50s um, American TV shows. Whether it looked like that, I just I get I get it. It's 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 the it's the genre that it's in. It's promising mushroom people. Blah blah blah. But I think it could have been just as powerful if they just ate themselves to death. Yeah. 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 It, it, the, the, the monsters had... I mean, it's not as if they're hard to get away from. If you no, stayed no, off they, the mushrooms, <laughs> you could have... Could have I don't, I don't know life. if you're consumed or just beaten to death by mushroom people, but um, it, they, they're not the most threatening of, uh, of creatures. I think yeah. uh, this is the, uh, the amusing thing, is when they sell it as this, like unstoppable threat this is like the big monster of the uh, film this is like the creature from the black the goon but it's just like the people from the mushroom hatch mm. and it doesn't really they're, they're they're fun to look at but they don't they're not the most threatening of creatures it has to be said no it's um, the, the the mushroom people themselves are not frightening it's what they represent and what they are 
and therefore what what's happening to you and you know it's that loss of self loss of identity although ironically you know that 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 uniqueness of the people on the boat which has set them apart from your traditional japanese person though is it is it saying they're eating the mushrooms and they're going to become i don't know like more traditional single focused people i don't know it's um there's, there's a, it made, made me think that which is i wasn't expecting to happen <laughs> i was expecting you know maybe a monster mashup at the end and uh i um I, again we've got to be careful we don't really want to ruin the end do we but um no no I was expecting okay. the end as it happened, but I wasn't expecting it to happen the way it did. Let's put it that right, way. Right, okay. Um, the film should also be noticed that it shuns the usual bright lit and light-hearted tones of the other films that we've come to, we've seen of our hundreds here, with our director, uh, Shigazu Akundo, designing the start look of the film. And Akundo was actually the apprentice of the Godzilla production designer, Saturo Koko. And here it really adds an otherworldliness, especially when you go out into the the forests of mushrooms here. There's a little bit of subtle smoke here. It's a very sort of desolate sort of place uh, where you've got this sort of lush vegetation and you've got this uh, food source here, which you're not supposed to touch. But it adds that sort of otherworldliness that I really like when we have an island adventure. It's not just like, look, tropical, little, tropical settings and girls in animal skin bikinis and... You know, mm. giant crabs and things yeah <laughs> I, the island adventure is, is feels like one of those genres that i feel is is overdue a, a comeback much like the underwater horror is one of those genres that uh, never really sort of like established itself as a main genre and yet every time i discover a film within the, within those genres it's always a delight and certainly this is no different I mean, um, yeah, I we, we are kind of due another island of Doctor Moreau kind of thing, aren't we? <laughs> that's uh, that's the kind of movie I like when they're set. Or even like King Kong is quite a lot of it's that kind of movie, isn't it? It's only oh, the Peter Jackson. Um, so like well, Peter I think Jackson I think I think the, the original the original King Kong is all set. You know, the first half of it is set, or the first act is set on an island, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a, it's definitely an island venture, much like you know, the Lost World. Mm. Um, you can sort of like of that period. Certainly, the island ventures are really sort of so popular, especially in like the pre-code era. There's mm. quite a few of the the um, island adventures, and often sold as like fake documentaries about weird um, tribal practices and things. Mm. But I, I, yeah, I like I like things like that. But I guess people have to be very careful these days that they're not. I liked. Um, I mean, it wasn't technically a jungle. Uh, it wasn't an island adventure, but it was a jungle adventure. The one with the rock and Emily Blunt that's based on a oh, Disney jungle cruise. That was really good. <laughs> I've yet to watch it because I have a real version to the Rock's films because they're all the same. I I went into it with some friends, and it was a film that we compromised to watch because it was just, you know, we're all very different and didn't want to watch. We want to go to the cinema first time after lockdown. And that was the compromise film. And we all ended up all very different people cinema wise, absolutely loving it. I'm not sure if that's just because we've gone to the cinema for the first time in two years or it really was yeah. good, but I enjoyed it. But I, I like that kind of people. I loved um, Kong Skull Island. Yes, um, definitely. 
you know, I, I like the movies. We loved Aguirre, um, Wrath of God, which is another example of that in a way. You know, there's people honoured travel in a strange place, and it's even better if, yeah, there's some hidden world that's been hidden from a land that time forgot kind of thing going on. There was um, didn't Brendan Fraser didn't wasn't it wasn't he star of a couple of movies that that took oh that. he did uh, Journey to the Centre of the Earth yeah I thought he did a couple of others that maybe um, I'm just thinking the Mummy did, movies maybe yeah maybe, he did the maybe. Mummy movies which are just like um, yeah no it, that's it's, an, that's sort of the old school adventure movie which I I think I think I am thinking of Journey to the Centre of the Earth but you know that that was but that was the nineties right that was. It's been a long time since we've had that. We, I guess we had lost the TV show, which was kind of that, but it didn't actually spend a lot of its time on the island. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I like that kind of thing as well. Um, the, when it came to shooting, Honda also imported an Oxbury optical printer from the States, which provided better image composing, allowing up to five composite shots and allowing the crew in avoid having to use expensive hand-painted mats and glass shots um he also right. told the sorry so you're saying this was this was actually mostly done on location then as opposed to being yeah i mean it was, it was done oh, on, cool. on, on a set it was but as i said normally where you would have like matte paintings and stuff they were able to mm. avoid that or whether you'd have like glass composites over the shop gotcha gotcha uh, okay the optical printer that they used on it uh, he also shot the film like a serious drama picture, and he reinforced this to his actors. He didn't let them like, oh, this is like a hokey sort of giant mushroom movie. This is, you know, we're shooting this as a serious drama, and I think it really carries across into the film, oh, especially in like the group breakdown sequences. It's way more serious melodrama than it is a hysterical monster movie. But in leaps and bounds. And again, like I said, it's got some proper decent actors and actresses in it that have done some proper decent work. And you know, what I read was they enjoyed being in this movie. They they didn't see this as a step step down. And yeah, it's like like the original Godzilla. To me, I'm not saying it's as good as the original Godzilla, but this is. This is a movie which exceeds its title and its poster by a long way. Yeah, even like when you look at Mothra, uh, Mothra mm. is actually a lot more scary and intimidating than she's been in any of her other appearances in the original Mothra. Um, and I think, again, it falls down to just how he sh- shoots the films. And it's really that what makes his work sort of stand out for many of like the, the contemporaries in, in his field. And, the attitude he brings to these films, I think it carries across, and certainly in this case, just because he's shooting as a serious drama, it's really sort of helps sells that first three quarters of the film. Because normally, when you watch these sort of movies, you're just waiting for the monster to turn up, and it's sort of like a lot of waiting around. And I think that's why a lot of Hammer movies sort of fail, is um, you're just sort of waiting for the thing to happen. And with this one, it's because it's been shot as a serious drama, you're so engaged with the interactions of this group that you don't really care about the time that's passing before we get to see the introduction of one of the mushroom people. Mm. Um, you're so sort of engaged in like the dynamics, the how certain characters are trying to, you know, best other characters in this situation and uh, 
how how they're generally um, choosing to handle the situation, which, as we said already, is pretty damn badly. But um, yeah, I've got nothing else really to talk about this one. No, I don't think so. Other than everyone, go and find it on archive.org, and let's let's join Quentin Tarantino in getting a reappraisal of it and Arrow or Eureka. Download it off archive.org and <laughs> get it um get it get it polished up. I think I just think I think there's a I think there's an argument for a films of Honda um retrospective that aren't Godzilla movies or monster movies. Well, maybe this would have to be monster movies, but yeah, it's really really a hidden gem. It's a nice one. Well done. So yeah, definitely uh, it's a big recommendation from both of us. Um, but this brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thank you as always for listening. If you haven't done ready, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us. Uh, leave us a review. Um, leave us a rate. Um, it all helps raise the profile of the show. You can follow us on Facebook, or Twitter and Instagram. Come say hi to us there. Um, and you can also check out our blog, which is the Asian Cinema Film Club. Yeah. It's asiancinemaphoneclub.wordpress.com We've got our complete archive of episodes on there as well. But soon it's your turn to pick and what would you like to choose for the next episode? You said you said that with such trepidation. <laughs> it's always the scariest part of the show. Because um, I don't know which direction you, you're going to go. And after <clears throat> the fact we watched The Assassin, it's, it's, it's yeah. an open field, isn't it? Well, I did win the right to have two. Um, you did art house movies, and I'm I'm allowing the assassin to be one of them. And I knew assassin was going to be challenging. Um, this is another one. Um, I don't know how challenging you'll find it because it's interesting. The most challenging thing is going to be pronouncing the name of the director, which I'll give it a go in a second. Um, I think this is a movie I have already put on potentially our first top twenty-five, top fifty films list. Okay. Um, it's a Thai movie, and again, we just haven't done enough Thai films. Um, sort of ten years ago, when I was writing a lot more for EasternKicks.com, I really was quite heavily into that the the, lo- the sort of the local Thai slow cinema scene. Um, don't worry, this isn't a slow cinema film though. Um, and I was lucky enough to go to see this film we're going to bring at the cinema and got to interview the director um and i think it was last week this film is on mubai so you can actually watch it <laughs> um the director is nawapol thamrong gratanarit i think i did a good job there but i won't really say that again and the film is called mary is happy mary is happy and it is an art house film and it's got a really interesting conceit in that basically the script of the film is 410 tweets by a Thai schoolgirl that the director didn't even know. And he just took that year's worth of tweets and has turned them into a movie. And it's a kind of... Um, it's sort of a coming of age, a comedy, drama, a little bit surreal, a um, little bit dark, a little bit fun. But it's... I really loved it. He did another film called 36, which was literally 36 
non-moving scenes, which I nearly brought to the show, but I don't think that was on mobile. But yeah, Mary's Happy with Mary's Happy. It's one of my favourite ever films, but it was ten years ago, nine years ago when I saw it, and I don't think I've watched it since, so it would be interesting for me to come back to it. But um, it, it's not as impenetrable as this has in, so don't worry. <laughs> I think you might have a little blast with it, actually. So that's obviously on our next episode, but uh, until then, thanks always for listening, and thanks to my co-host, Stephen. Pleasure as always, sir. And uh, we'll be back next time to talk about Mary is Happy. But until then, good night. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.